Could I so what are you going to do about the public realm? <laughs> well, I think one of the best urban design publications of the 21st century is Manual for Streets, to be honest. Um, I think, uh, I think, <coughs> I realized looking back that, um, that an orthodoxy was, was established in Design Bulletin 32 in 1977 that created an unbelievably controlled uh, world that when I was told to read it when I studied urban design in 82, I thought this is utterly uninteresting to me because it's not about the city. And it then took me about 18 months to realize that this design guidance for roads prevented cities from happening. Full stop. I don't know if you realize the extent to which cities have been made illegal by guidance that was only withdrawn in 2007. And in 2007, we had a crash. So we didn't build very much housing. So we actually haven't faced up to whatever comes after a guidance that prevents us from making cities. Which, and, it, and for me, Manual for Streets um, sound terribly boring, doesn't it? Just talking about uh, highway engineers, but they have the capacity to wreck urbanism and the capacity to put it straight. But I mean, that's, it's a good point, isn't it? Because I think one of the things that you and Paul and Sue, I think primarily, have, have done is to engage with highway engineers and highway planners. Um, and nobody mentioned that yet. Um, and that's resulted in a lot of work that goes again beyond, beyond this immediate group. That's actually begun to change the nature of the way traffic engineers look at places that they're dealing with. Um, Sue, do you have anything yeah, to Yeah, I suppose what I was going to say is that in a way the, 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 the number, the problem is the thing that we call the public realm. Highway engineers have tended to call some other kind of manual which isn't responsive environments. You know, it's a manual that designs all of that space primarily for cars up until manual for streets. Things are changing slowly but it is, it is very, very slow. And I suppose in response to Richard's question, all I would say is every design opportunity, every conversation with a planner, every planning application, every conversation with your client, keep talking about the public realm and the relationship of buildings to public realm because I think that is one of the prime things that we should be trying to affect, yeah. uh, as yeah. Richard said at the end of his, his five minutes. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I suppose... I think that the forces that are destroying the public realm, so I, I agree with Richard, I think it's hugely under threat, are largely politics driven largely by economics, and therefore I think urban design has to get to grips with and kind of um, seep into the, the political and economic domains. Uh, and um, I, I, that may sound like a very tall order, and I think actually it is in Britain, because I think Britain is very stuck I, 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 I see this as a period where you would hope that the recession would sort of free up thinking in Britain and, and it would sort of shatter and there would be all kinds of different things happening. I think instead it's just terrified everyone and, and, and people have sort of regressed to a acceptance of the status quo. Mm. One of the things that Sue and I have been doing recently is, is running stuff abroad and um, <coughs> I'm enormously encouraged by, for example, a very senior political appointed economic development guy in, in Brazil writing to me and saying what the hell can we do about mixed use 
you know, we've got yeah. to do something that stops Belorizanche turning into. Um, they, they, they'd had planning applications in <coughs> 2011 for seven million square meters of. Can you believe this? Seven million square meters of uh, condominium housing and almost nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the fact that a very senior political guy sees this as a huge issue, I think is a big opportunity. Yeah? Yeah. No, I'm sure it is. Was it? Yeah, um, you gave us a, um, a, a lovely, um, and for me, nostalgic account of books that were influential in the 70s, which is when I was studying. But I wondered whether um, um, Leon Creer's ideas, which were published in, in English in um, in AD in mm. the late 70s, you know, practically every issue had something by Leo, which I remember as being absolutely sort of dynamite for, mm. for ideas about urbanism. Was that any kind of influence on the book? <coughs> to me? Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, no, it was, it was. And, and uh, other people of that, uh, of that ilk, um, uh, Perez de Arce, for example. Yeah, no, they were. Um, but uh, to a fairly limited extent, because I, I think all of those people, they really just took off from the idea that um, modern cities are not as good as old cities, so we should copy old cities. And that did seem to us a little bit limited. Uh, I mean, because it didn't really take into account the fact that, well, yeah, you can design this amazing school at Saint-Quentin on Yveline, but everyone knows you can't build it. So what's the point? I mean, it just seemed like a piece of stage setting, really. Thank you. Uh, in regards to the uh, question about the public realms being under the threat, uh, I am kind of in mind to think of the public realm not only as the places between the buildings on the street levels, but above the street levels as well. Mm. We are now moving very much vertically. For that matter, I'm kind of not very sure that the public realm is under the threat. The public realm, I kind of begin to think that it is kind of moving and shifting from what it has been into becoming something else. And so the kind of uh, effects of the uh, highway engineers and the traffic engineers on developing the street levels is maybe bad thing, maybe good thing, maybe indifferent, but what happens to the public realm as space in which people come together, interact, exchange ideas, and form civilization, that is something that is probably shifting from the ground level, and we, we need to think about the characters of the public realms at another level. But when it does that, is it still a public realm, or is it a private realm? <coughs> no, it is public realm, because it is where the public come together. No. <laughs> no, <laughs> but I can get any public highways, yeah. highways. Yeah. Yeah. It's is, that, is it public realm? Is it I'm not talking about the ownership. I'm talking about where the people move in and where the people go to, where the people meet. 
I'm, I'm, I'm itching to ask, answer well, you because I'll let you the, the, the trouble with that, I think, I mean, I, I see where you're coming from, but I, I think the trouble with that is how you define the people. The people that, that are on the upper levels of the Barbican are those people that occupy the upper levels of the Barbican, which is a very small number and be quite, quite stratified, actually, in the way that uh, Richard was talking about. And, and it's Not totally, but I mean, I think quite. the Barbican is unusual because it's managed by a local sure, authority, sure. And, and although it's very private. But, <laughs> but I mean, if you, if you go into... We, we, we used to run field trips for students in cities all over England, mm. only over England, primarily in the 80s and then internationally in the 90s. And it was at a time in England in the 80s when um, <coughs> shopping malls were opening up. Um, now, if you call the interior of a shopping mall the public realm, um, it ain't. And we would have students who wanted to make a quick sketch and measure the dimensions who would be thrown out by security guards. Uh, if you didn't look as if you might have some money to spend, uh, then you were rejected. The American, the American malls for a long time uh, didn't permit unaccompanied young people in, in malls. So it isn't really then a public realm, is it? And I think there's also a very insidious term now, and in my view it's very insidious, called the private public realm, yes. yeah, uh, that, uh, that somehow people find comforting as if it means, and you've seen a lot of developments, you know, that they are somehow giving new, new public spaces, new public routes, and in fact they're not public at all, they're, they're highly constrained, they're, they're owned and managed by uh, authorities who, who aren't public, and people don't have a right of access 24 hours a day. And for me, that's one of the one of the simple measures of whether something's public or not. The, the, the other one is: are all kinds of people <coughs> can all kinds of people access it at 24 hours a day? You're absolutely right. The point of view being mentioned here, though, was very important. The public realm, of course, is about it is owned and governed by, and that's a very important word: governed <laughs> by the community. But actually, many of the things we go on in the public realm are happening in the semi-public. So um, let's take King's Cross Central. Is the way up there to walking up to within that, is that public realm? Is the entry through into King's Cross Station and walking through, which I often do to get from one to the other through St Pancras, the public realm, mm -hmm. is through St Martin's School public realm where you can walk right through. It's not public realm in the sense of governance thing, but it does most of the things you're talking about in other ways. And I think this is very important. And there is a softening up, actually, of what the, it's, a, it's a blurring of those areas, which we need to be aware of, actually, because it's actually what it's doing, from your point of view, is making these very big chunks of building more permeable. And that is very important. They're not permeable enough. <coughs> Taking across. We, we went. I can remember when uh, Herzberger built the, um, the pensions insurance building in Central uh, Bahia, yeah, yeah. and I can remember seeing the pictures and being knocked out and wanting to get there, and we eventually got there, and we wandered through. We reveled in being able to get a coffee and going to a library and do a bit of photocopying and uh, uh, all the things that you could do in that kind of public realm. And then we looked at the outside of it, and I thought, this is, you know, the cost of, of this public realm is that uh, the public realm on the outside that is actually public is, is, is diminished, dreadfully diminished by it. So if you want a rule, it's my version of that rule would be 
those kinds of controlled public realms are crap. We, we introduced this specialist urban design uh, critical term quite early on in the uh, presentation, as we did in every uh, urban design student year that I can remember. It was usually about 90 seconds before the word crap appeared in the uh, description. Um, it is crap. I've got two people who've been very patiently waiting, and I'd like everybody Sorry, to have John. a chance. So if I could do you please first. Um, it was quite salutary to, to realise during your presentation that uh, the really big forces of agglomeration preceded you writing of the book. You know, the forces of agglomeration in retail and in workplace buildings <coughs> and in food distribution that have resulted in really very different building types internally and externally. And the last conversation was actually a good segue into this because a building like Central here that could offer so many goodies inside could only do so by being quite a big entity on the outside. And so I wonder if you could do um, this impossible thing or kind of backcast into when you were writing the book and imagining that these very uh, agglomerated economic forces and buildings that we have now, if that had been around then, how you might have approached it differently. Or is that what we're going to be seeing in the Green Book? Well, it will be to, it will be to an extent, but... <coughs> Well, as, as you were speaking, one of the things that flashed in my mind, and remember that an awful lot of responsive environments was actually written by people who were teaching in the School of Architecture. Um, there was a lot of, of urban design in this, of course, but uh, most of us were teaching most of our time in, in architecture. And one of, the, one of the things that I can remember being really spectacularly bizarre that it's almost entirely forgotten now is that Following the kind of the kind of seventies uh, systematic building and brutal hospitals and God knows all what that were appearing over the world in in in, in Belgium just outside Brussels, uh, there was an architect who built some student accommodation for married uh, married medical students or medical I'm not quite getting the phrases right here. Uh, but it was at the, uh, a, a big teaching hospital, and um, Lucien Kroll was the architect, was, uh, was addressed by uh, a student body, and the way the story is told is that they couldn't stand uh, having yet another kind of 500 metre long building with everything looking the same. And Kroll came up with this, when he lectured, he came up with a wonderful line along the lines of, I began to realise that why should you open the window catalogue and choose 5,000 versions of, uh, of this window, which is what architecture in the 70s often felt like? Why not choose one of every type of window in the uh, catalogue mm. and then put an elevation to go? And laugh at it, you may, and it's not remembered much anymore. But I can remember thinking, this is an unbelievably uh, mold-breaking <laughs> moment. Mm. Yeah. See, I, I, Oh, sorry, can I just, I, I mean, I, th I think um, architects particularly are far too respectful of the way things are and don't think much about how things could be different. <coughs> they always say the opposite. <coughs> but a lot of people imagine that because there are a lot of big sheds around, there always will be a lot of big sheds. Now, it seems to me it's very interesting that the big out-of-town shopping centres are gradually beginning to realise that 
<coughs> Sainsbury's local, Tesco's in the centre of town, etc., etc., actually are much better economically with, for them with climate change and trying to cut down uh, travel, which we're going to have to do. I mean, I, I, we're mad if we think this is a problem for our children. It's now a problem for us, for God's sake. It, it, it just seems to me that there was an unfortunate period where there were all these building types you're talking about. But I actually think I see them falling apart around us. I hope I'm right, uh, but then I'm an incurable optimist. But it, 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 we may be forced to do uh, crap like that now, but I think the, it, the, the key to it is, is like gated communities. So in Latin America, you have to build gated communities. There's no way around it because nobody will fund anything else. The trick is to design them so that they can be joined up. The trick is to design these great big agglomerations if we actually have to because we have to get the fees and pay the mortgage and feed the kids and so on uh, next month, uh, to design them so that they can turn into something else. But that, that, that's, that's the way I would see it. Just like Diocletian's yeah. palace. Yeah. Just like... Diocletian's Rose. palace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I just want to do a bit of devil's advocate for the, the crap. <laughs> um, the uh, privately owned public realm which, which we are having more and more inflicted upon us. And, and look at the reasons why. Um, the, the reasons are that the public bodies, the local authorities, the, 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 you don't have regional authorities anymore except in London, have no money to take over any new public realm and barely have enough money to look at the stuff that we've got. Um, I live along the road, Spitalfields Shoreditch, and the, you know, it's, it's an area that has turned from genuine crap with a small <laughs> sea into you know, major gentrification and an extraordinary place to be and live and so on. Um, and we have various developments which have been fought by the local community. Spitalfields, for instance, which, with mm. which the market was turned into one of Norman Foster's worst buildings ever. However, and there's a massive piece of um, public realm which is privately owned, funded and paid for, but completely public 24 hours a day and completely accessible. And nobody who didn't know would ever perceive that it wasn't public realm. And I was, I was in a presentation two nights ago from another developer further up Shoreditch High Street who has a completely, at the moment, uh, a, a block, an urban block, which they're going to redevelop, which currently is a car park. It used to have buildings on it. It's never, um, uh, since the, the 15th century, it's never been publicly accessible. What they're proposing is that the whole block, it becomes a piece of public realm, has a market in the centre of it, and is open all the time. Now, it will be entirely owned by this company. It will be looked after and run by them. Hackney Council doesn't want to know, of course, because if Hackney Council sure. does know, right. the highways sure, people, sure. our friends will get involved and they will require that, that, yeah, sure. part, yeah. you know, that they have two materials that the lorries can drive over, the only ones I'll accept, they want yellow lines around every corner, they'll want all this ghastly, ghastly stuff. So uh, I, I'm, I know what the political issues are as, as democratic socialists or whatever you, we want to call ourselves about the ownership and control of the public realm. However, what we are getting in London and, and our, in other cities is some fantastic bits of public realm that are privately funded and privately controlled in the end. However, massively public, publicly used and to the benefit of the public. And uh, I mean, I think the, fun, the, prob the reason why this is happening is there is a fundamental <coughs> problem with British politics. However, that is Absolutely. a little bit too much for the urban design group to tackle. I think in the end, I give it a tick. Yeah, yeah. 
but, uh, and, and I would too, but on the basis that it could be converted into a proper city at relatively low cost. Well, it doesn't, it just happens, it is. Yes, a lot of it. not quite, not, not quite, not more, but not it sure. could be. And I mean, I, I totally agree with you that, that, that the urban designer, architect, whatever, has a very limited remit, almost no power, um, hopefully some ability to persuade. But you just have to do the best you can, don't you? And I think that if the best you can is to produce something that could be retrofitted into a decent piece of public realm eventually, without having to be knocked down and start again, I think that's a considerable achievement, actually. You know? Okay. I, I, I unfortunately don't know the areas that you're talking about. I live too far away. And, uh, but as you were describing it, I. I remember um, just a couple of years ago there was a, a planning aid booklet published which you may have come across and it had, um, <clears throat> it had things that looked like blocks and it had spaces inside the blocks with markets and happy things happening and the streets, I was perversely wanting to see the streets, the streets were kind of white space in between the blocks that were then opened up for things happening in them. And for years now, um, we've been engaged in, uh, in training of, of different kinds in different places, from Hackney 100 years ago to, uh, and so on and so on. And uh, we keep on coming across, and it's inescapable, I suppose, isn't it? We keep on coming across blocks with spaces on the inside. And we put car parking in responsive environments on mm. the inside of the block, and we um, came to the conclusions slowly but um, this wasn't the best thing and uh, we Sue and I contributed to car parking what's works where with it's so exciting isn't it urban design talking about car parking it had to come at some point I'll talk about yellow line soon the um, the we we Sue put the phrase in uh, the street can be a wonderful car park this is kind of breaking all the sins you can imagine and um, uh, it seems to me that um, the street is, should be the place where that activity that you're talking about is, and that's what urban design is, I think, making the street possible to do that. And everything's possible. Uh, even, can, even can, I just, let's just, can I just add something? I mean, I suppose thinking about it, because you know, we do have to think about it very carefully and try not to trip ourselves up over definitions. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me that the public realm, to me, is actually the continuous or the continuity of mesh of streets that give us access through a settlement to private plots and private buildings. Now, ultimately, if there are private bits of that that maintain that continuity and through which people can move at will, regardless of who they are and what they look like and almost what they're doing, then that's fine. Now, I don't want to get too hung up on, on the ownership issues and who's paying or who's maintaining. It is this, for me, prime, um, prime quality of a settlement and a place that it has this continuity of street mesh. And that's actually what we have to look after fundamentally and primarily, I think, as a, as a kind of group of people who are interested in good places. You know, I've got a number of people. There was somebody right at the back. Yeah, sorry, I was actually going to... I thought, it, I thought it was you. You were the green person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was just going to say about uh, public private space and bids and not having enough money in the councils to afford it. Uh, to create something that's actually 100% public and 
On that note, anyway, the streets um, or streetscapes make up, like James said, the public realm. Yeah, actually, mm -hmm. people as pedestrians can't walk in the middle of the road. So theoretically, what is public and what is not is what big debate in itself. Mm -hmm. Probably not for now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I've got. It's already been discussed. So. I've got one person here. You're next. Then you, please, and then then you, and then you. <laughs> um, it occurs to me that um, most parts of cities don't actually need more public realm. What they need is better public realm. Um, there are exceptions to that, where we've lost public realm because of the sort of agglomeration that we've been talking about. There is, a, there is an obligation on us, where possible, to reinstate those connections. And that isn't always as a result of buildings being built, but major pieces of highway being constructed that sever um, public routes through parts of town. Um, where developers find themselves providing new bits of what they like to call public realm, either mouths within buildings or or uh, plazas that they provide for us by setting their building back. That's often the response to the quality of the public realm that already exists, trying to get away from that, create a, a, a mediating space that prevents them having to have a direct relationship with a piece of public realm that's not working very well. But to think that we can't, we've got to privatise parts of the public realm because the public authorities don't have the wherewithal to take on new public is undermining the whole argument that they just have to look after the public realm that we've got. And us as urban designers, we've got to do our bit to protect public realm that exists and enhance its quality and make sure that where possible and where <coughs> it's necessary, new bits of public realm can be constructed. I don't think we need to worry too much about the need for lots of new stuff. Yeah, it's not yeah, I mean, it's a point well made. I think yeah. you want to, yeah. you want to respond. No, I need to agree. Yeah. I, it's yeah. not a quantity yeah. thing. It's a quality yeah. thing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. 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 But you did say a highway going through a city, and I was brought up in Birmingham. I, I left to go to London, uh, and they demolished it um, after I left. Um, I'm not sure it's personal. Um, well, you used it to get out, right? <laughs> <laughs> Who said that? <laughs> <laughs> Lawrence, who just made that point. The, um, yeah. When, in 61 or 63, what is it, when traffic in town came out, um, the, the government was urging local authorities in 64 onwards to respond to this um, book. If you haven't read Traffic in Towns, buy one. It's, uh, it's almost as good a responsive environment. It's full of wonderful drawings. Uh, very exciting uh, and still available on eBay. Um, it's um, and the the and I was really knocked out some years later by uh, reading a German living in England called Carmen Hasklau, who uh, wrote a book uh, that was published, uh, wrote a PhD that was published as um, Child in the City, I think, um, and and she said that uh, that the Buchanan's traffic in towns was really was translated into, into English, uh, I mean, translated into Dutch and into German, um, and read and really uh, respected and understood, um, with the difference that in Germany and Holland, I'm making huge generalizations now, uh, the main streets didn't smash through the city the way that they did in Birmingham. Um, so in, Co in Cologne, you come off the, uh, the motorway and you're doing 30 kilometers, which is 18.6 miles an hour, uh, by the time you've come down the end of the ramp. 
so that the city still exists as a, as a city. Whereas in Birmingham, a phrase that uh, my colleague uh, Mayor Hillman uh, uh, has been using probably for 30 years now um, is that uh, in cities like Birmingham and many other cities in, uh, in England uh, or in Britain, we have pedestrian bantustans. Mm -hmm. Little places where pedestrians can thrive as long as they're kept together and preferably <laughs> walled and speared if they dare to go outside. And this isn't good enough and uh, the, the continental city takes a different view. The continental city has road types which we haven't yet explored in this country. Um, I've been trying to get uh, with some of my colleagues um, uh, uh, a dual carriageway in, in Oxford, uh, uh, seen as a, as a boulevard rather than being as a dual carriageway. This is so far beyond our comprehension now that uh, some years will have to take place. I think we, we need to hear some more voices. Yeah, mm. yeah I was warned by what Ian had to say about the, the city as a set of systems and, and how those systems interrelate and how we as human beings interact with those systems because to me, in recent years, urban design, or people say, say people's perception of urban design, has become too narrowly focused. Um, you even think of the book by design, urban design in the planning system. Yeah. And I think that's uh, the wrong way to, to view things. Yeah. But this way, a lot of people out there do think of it. It's almost like a, an adult to things. But yeah. hang on a minute, you know, this, this urban design is everything, and, and other things are interrelated to that. So I think we need, we need to sort of turn the focus back again yeah. to how we ourselves are using the planet, how we, how we devise cities in a way which, we can, which are beautiful and places that we can actually interact with our fellow citizens in, in, in a meaningful way. Okay? Mm -hmm. um, and we hear today about the, the, the countryside being uh, chosen for, for putting a lot of homes in, whereas actually we can't even get cities right. Really. <laughs> so, uh, there's a worrying sort yeah. of Things happen yeah. there. That's what I wanted to think how we might take that forward, perhaps. Mm -hmm. so, wouldn't it be nice to have a book called Planning in the Urban Design System? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. 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 Cling on to that thought. Write it. Write yeah. it. Two, two more people, at least three more people. <laughs> yeah. I think if you think the order is here, here, and here. So, would you like to go um, first? I'd just like to talk a little bit about climate change because it's <coughs> interesting in your book, and um, it just strikes me that. I don't know, in responsive case, it wasn't really thinking about climate change, it just kind of meshed really nicely with that time. And, and the, really the, ability, the potential of urban design to tackle car dependency through walkable urban cities. And, but it strikes me that that doesn't happen actually. I mean, you look at eco towns and even where, yeah. yes, within each little pod it might be a little walkable place, but so we're not actually linking that together into the cities and we're not connecting that. And mm. just, there was a, I think there was a planning list on the radio ready for this morning talking about, I can't remember the figure now, but maybe a 15% expansion in our urban fabric. Mm. So the potential and also the threats and opportunities within that. But mm. I suppose just any reflections on yeah. how we correct, really tackle well, I, think, I think we haven't quite got there. Well, I think, I, I think the fundamental problem is, is the one that uh, Barry alluded to, actually, that, that we, we we have a, a dreadful tendency in all the professions that actually engage with the built environment towards tunnel vision. We, we, we stare at one level. Landscape architects deal with the green stuff. Um, architects deal with the buildings. Planners deal with land uses and stuff. In, instead of having a more holistic view, and, and what urban design 
has to be about, I think, is, is the holistic view. That's why it has to be taught in year one of everything. And if one could break that cycle, which is very, very difficult because all the professionals have, all the professions have a vested interest in continuing to be tunnel visioned, etc. It's very difficult to, to kind of achieve. But if we could break out of that and see settlements as very complex systems where there are all these subsystems called buildings and plot structures and street structures, one thing or another, and what matters is the relationships between them, then we would stop the current syndrome where uh, you talk to, say, uh, I'm not, I mean, I, I regard myself as an architect, so don't take this personally, those of you that also do that. Uh, you talk to architects about sustainable uh, design and they think, ah, oh, I've got this green building and it's got all these PVs and all this stuff. But it's making no contribution, whatever, to the larger system. Um, until we crack that, I, I, I think we've got a, a really serious problem. Which is why I'm, I'm still obsessive about education. I mean, I really, I know it's a hackneyed thing to say, but until we actually start teaching people a different way of thinking, um, by law, I, I, I think I would machine gun everyone <laughs> that runs the current <laughs> school of architecture and start again, really. <laughs> Not only architecture, planning, everything. <laughs> there, there are two people waiting here, and there's Robert at the back, and I'm. I'm conscious of the fact that one of the notions was that we would finish about now so that you could talk to people with drinks but I'm going to take these two and then Robert and then we'll see where we are please. Uh, I'd like to, to relate two things uh, that you said. Uh, the first thing I which I thought was very interesting when you related urban design to medicine and you should have a, a broad whole uh, knowledge for everyone and then you specialize as an architect, as an environmental engineer, landscape uh, architect. And the second, uh, when you said that architects are uh, narrow-minded about change or they've got difficulties with change. Well, I, my initial career was an, as an architect and I worked as an urban designer. And urban designer, as an urban designer, the design we offer are some far, sometimes they don't, uh, they don't have so much change, but it was the same when I was an architect. It's because uh, we are so constrained, keep our time we spend most of our time trying to, to teach about uh, this knowledge, which is there for a long time now, and believe in it. And it's very difficult to, to teach it to, to clients, to developers. Then you've got the, the planning departments, and you have to explain everything again. And all these people are kind of working against you, even though you're, well, we are hopefully working for, for their interest as well. Uh, so, where I'm going is that uh, I was wondering, rather than being a, an update of uh, a very interesting uh, book uh, for professionals of urban design and updating it with sustainability element or landscape architecture elements, which as professionals I believe we are trained and qualified and know about them, shouldn't a new version of responsive environment be rather something oriented to the general public? Mm -hmm to the developers, to the people working in planning. I mean, a, a broader public and be something really educational for them because I find we, we don't need so many new theories as architects or urban designers. We need to yeah, really teach them and interact with the, the general public. Let's mm, you come in because you, you, well, you want a related point. Similar, yeah. It's very okay. related actually, yeah. which is that uh, I'm an urban designer and a planner with an architectural background, and, and I'm enjoying working with neighbourhoods on neighbourhood plans mm. at the moment, and 
particularly at the moment, the Community Land Trust, and we've got a piece of land that they're developing from you, which is fantastic. So we're working with them, facilitating discussions about urban design principles. And what would really work for me, I think, is a nice little handbook that was called Responsive Neighbourhoods, mm -hmm. which was simple, written for ordinary people. We can't send these people off to read Jane Jacobs. <laughs> We're kind of trying to persuade them in two-hour time slots and workshops of the how yeah. good principles of urban design would be for their new development yeah. and, and help them to design it. So, mm. but, yeah. you know, in a way, I, th I think that's what responsive environments is. It actually, is. I think it it's is. an incredibly mm. simple um, set of qualities that yeah. people usually can relate to their everyday experience. Uh, certainly, it's been our mm. our experience yeah. in training. Um, you know, whether it needs another revision, I've, we've thought uh, long and hard, as I'm sure you're all very aware of whether we could do a yeah, second edition. <laughs> and we've struggled with that for a very long time, and I think it's, for all sorts of reasons, been set aside. I think partly because we decided once you start fiddling around with that structure of the basic qualities, it, it has a kind of ten, a, it back to in shed analogy. You know, once you start to try to replace the windows or something, the whole pieces, the whole yeah, thing yeah. falls to pieces. So we've and our, our publishers are here. We she's shared some of the some of the agonies we've had with that. So um, trust us, we have we have thought about that long and hard. But I think yeah. we've decided not but, to and to move forward. I but, suppose. But what you did, what what you discover is if you, I mean, I'm sure you found the same. I mean, I've spent like. 20 odd years until 2009 working on the Angeltown estate in Brixton and it's incredibly easy to explain urban design <laughs> if yeah. you're not trying to explain it to a professional yeah. <laughs> a five year old can understand it yeah. Becky Kittle and I spent every Saturday for a year, we must have been mad with a group of teenagers from the, from the Blackbird Lees estate in Oxford teaching them urban design and they, by the end of it they could design joined up streets and active fronts and they understood it <laughs> terribly easy. Well, it's only when you've laboriously gone through and paid a lot of money to do it, some professional training course, you can't do it anymore. No. Because, no, seriously, because your head is full of ideologies that stop it being possible. And actually, I think the only way to influence, um, this, back to the gentleman behind you, uh, other kind of professions and the way they interact is probably through regulation. I don't think yes. you'll do it, you know, somebody said, well, we have to wait a long time for that. Well, let's face it, none of us got that long, have we? So actually, you know, it, it does only happen through government policy, through regulation, maybe yeah. through international agreement, but certainly through national policy agreement that isn't messed about with each successive government. So. Yeah. I think that has to has to be that in, you know that influence as well. But then it's down to um, interpretation without the right mindset. That's, that's a no, not, not necessarily. Can I just say one thing? Yes. One, and it relates <laughs> to something Graham once told me. So I'm telling uh, Graham's story, and I may have got it wrong. But Graham told me that once he was walking along a street in Germany and there were these new buildings and they had all these multiple uses facing oh, yes. onto yeah, the street. We and Graham said, <coughs> how did you manage to do this? It's and fantastic. this German guy said, it's in the regulations. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> no, the German guy said, looked at me as if I was a fool, yeah. and said, it's in the regulations. Because we were going, oh, yeah. what's yeah. your question? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> British, British regulations and the planners don't push it. They don't it's not in the regulations in the same way. I know that our star guests are going to be around to mingle with people and answer other questions. You are, aren't you? Yes, I just could do some thanks. Yes, yes, yes. No, I'm just going to let Robert come in. Yeah. 
Joe Holyoke said that responsive environments will be replaced. <laughs> and the question I'd like to ask is to what extent is responsive environments the ultimate man of the designers? And I would like to cite Rob Callan. Are you still there, Rob? Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. Rob's got this theory of urban words that there are certain concepts that pass down decade to get decade, century to century. It could be urban regeneration that gets called urban renaissance, etc. etc. It's the same idea that continues. How close has responsive environments come to being the ultimate manual for designers in its structure, in its content? 95%? One of the things that it does that I think is, is quite, quite astonishing for me, I, I come from an art school, from a number of art schools in fact, and, uh, and um, and I've been teaching drawing, and then I become bolshy and started engaging in uh, in crits, designing houses, uh, and that kind of stuff. And uh, I'd worked in buildings like for many years, so construction wasn't a problem to me. I, I I could do that better than most of the architecture stuff that I was working with. He said pompously. <laughs> the thing the thing that really struck me when I did urban design in '82 um, plus uh, was that um, we had to do. We had to do financial feasibility of a design. I presume you've all done this. Um, in 1982, you did it with a calculator, and you measured your drawing, and you realized it was a piece of... You did a drawing. You did a drawing, uh, did a plan. Uh, you realized it was rubbish. You changed it. You measured it again. You did the sums. You realized it was rubbish, but perhaps slightly better the second time. You did it a third time, if you were lucky. And then you bullshitted your tutors. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> And we wrote a big chunk in, uh, in Responsive Environments about this. After I'd done the course, Robert Maguire, as our head of school um, then, said, I want you to teach urban design in the undergraduate course. And I'd been teaching the undergraduate course for 10 years, and so I started teaching the urban design that I'd learned, including financial feasibility. And the students, being high quality uh, achieving students, who so could all do sums, um, took to it like a duck to water. My fellow tutors hated it, really hated it with a vengeance, with vehemence, to the extent that on one occasion after we'd done what I thought was a really brilliant uh, kind of site organization arrangement that was then going to go into more detail, I can remember from the other side of the screen my colleague saying, right, you've done that, I want you to forget that now. And I can, I can remember, obviously I didn't leap over the fence and killing at the point of it. But it seems to me that you do the financial feasibility, it opens so many doors. You realize that, I mean, how many times have you been in meetings and somebody says, can't afford that? And if you turn around and say, have you done a fucking sum? <laughs> uh, sorry, I didn't mean to. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> if you do the sums, you realize. Don't say that. It's probably why I it. If you do the sums, you realise actually a huge number of things are possible, and uh, it's 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 just so uh, it's an opening to uh, feel. Yeah, I shut up.
<coughs> well, Sue, Sue says she wants to give some thanks. Um, I'm sure somebody else is going to bring the end of the event with thanks, but I'd like to thank the authors of Responsive Environments for the decades of pleasure they've given me. <laughs> <laughs> to us and we're very very honoured thank you very much yeah. thank you all very much for coming along this evening it's been great to hear views and to have this discussion there's going to be lots of people I ought to thank and I'll forget but I'm going to start with a few of them which of course is other colleagues of the Joint Centre Richard mentioned earlier Richard Brian Goody um, Ivor Samuels yes. <laughs> Ian Lyon there's a whole range of people who have been part of this you know it's not just about the book it's about something much much bigger than that so I'd like to thank them. Uh, the fantastic women who kept the Joint Centre together, actually, over the years, from Stella to Viv Ebbs and Lyndon Yu, they were so important to the life of that place. So I'd like to, like to just mention them as well. Um, our fantastic external examiners over the years, of whom we've heard uh, both Joe and Roger speak tonight, you know, bringing in all sorts of thinking and expertise and critique into the Joint Centre. As uh, you know, I think people think we were a group of people who all thought exactly the same, same thing, and we weren't. Uh, as Richard said, you know, most of the time it's a very big punch up, but the most productive punch up that I've ever been involved in. And then I suppose finally, I'd just like to remember all of our brilliant hundreds of students who not only enriched the life of the centre, the nature of the things that we did there, the publications that have come out of it, but also all the fantastic work they've gone on to do afterwards across the world. So. Thank you all very much indeed.